Hi, it's Hugh Drummond. In this OA On Air Extra, Suzanne Morse and I speak with award-winning author James Carroll. The June 2019 cover story in The Atlantic is titled, Abolish the Priesthood. James Carroll writes that to save the church, Catholics must detach themselves from the clerical hierarchy and take the faith back into their own hands. You can read his story on theatlantic.com. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Hugh Drummond here, and today we're speaking with, well, my colleague, Suzanne Morse. Hello. And we have the honor, the privilege of speaking with James Carroll, the author of 20 books, most recently, The Cloister, and um, also most recently, the uh, author of a uh, piece in, that, was, uh, that ran in The Atlantic called Abolish the Priesthood. Jim? Greetings, Hugh. Hi, Suzanne. Hey, Jim. How are you? Good. So I think the first question is, uh, tell us about the, the piece you wrote, what, it, what motivated you to write it, and you know, why now? Well, my subject is the moral, and you could say political crisis in the Catholic Church. Um, everyone is aware of the terrible scandals that have been laid bare over the last tw- almost 20 years uh, involving the abuse of minors by priests, and perhaps even more momentous, the complicity of most bishops in siding with the predators instead of with the victims. And as the church has found itself unable, uh, really essentially unable, to deal with this scandal um, and the ways in which uh, a series of waves of it keep running in on the church, on us. Um, I have been ever more troubled. I'm a Catholic. I was a Catholic priest for five years, a hundred years ago. Um, I say a hundred years ago, but I'm only half kidding because it's almost 50 years ago. But um, it really hit me this year um, that there's something deep, deep, deep in the Catholic institution that is so dysfunctional and that has not been being paid attention to. And it came to me that it's the structure, the culture of the priesthood itself. The article in The Atlantic is entitled Abolish the Priesthood. It's an outrageous title. But it isn't just, um, as they say, clickbait, because lo and behold, I found myself effectively arguing for such a dismantling of the structure of the priesthood and a, reorgan- a reimagining of the way in which the church's ministry is organized that it did, in effect, uh, amount to an abolition of the priesthood as we know it. Uh, and I'll just say another quick word about it. The priesthood is, is enmeshed in the vice of clericalism. Many, many figures, including Pope Francis himself, are ready to attribute the dysfunction of the church to clericalism. But you'll notice that almost nobody ever gets around to saying what exactly clericalism is. It's as if they're talking about priests who wear expensive shirts with French cuffs and gold cufflinks, as if that's clericalism. But the truth is, clericalism stands on two main pillars. One is 
the all-male character of the priesthood, and the other is the mandatory requirement of celibacy for all priests. So between the two of those pillars, we have the structure of an institution that is misogynist, structurally and ideologically, and we have an institution that is in the grip of a, a sexual uh, a sexual denigration of human bodily experience that is uh, profoundly um, dysfunction, dysfunctional for the life of Catholics. So um, those are so firmly ingrained in the culture of the priesthood that I'm arguing now it's only by dismantling that culture that we can move the church forward. So uh, a couple questions on that point. I mean, first, uh, I've had a number of conversations with people who will say to you or to me or to any other practicing Catholic, why don't you just walk away? Um, That's the only way to um, effect change in the church. So that's one question. And the second is, how do you envision dismantling that culture without just without the Catholic Church becoming essentially another Protestant denomination? Mm-hmm. Well, two questions. I'll take the first one. Sure. Uh, to walk away from the church is to leave its worst impulses unchallenged and its best impulses unsupported. The church is, well, it's a transcendent institution. By that I mean it is in some way, for those of us who are believers, a living presence of God in the world, a way in which Jesus Christ continues in history. And so the church is, uh, by definition, for those of us who are believers, uh, essential. Um, More practically, the church, with more than a billion adherents, is the largest NGO in the world. Mm -hmm. It crosses all major borders, rich, poor, intellectual, uh, illiterate, north, south, um, high-tech savvy, uh, people who are totally out to lunch when it comes to technology, everything. Uh, It's the only institution on the planet that crosses borders like that at such a scale. And the future of the human species depends on an organization this massive being humane, uh, politically responsible, a tribune of justice, a source of peace and advocacy for peace, and I would add, uh, in this day and age especially, uh, an absolute advocate for equality of women. And it's essential that the church move in that direction, be rational, not fundamentalist, ever more committed to social justice, and uh, and to repeat myself, ever more committed to the equality of women. Yeah. Fighting for that uh, is a way of fighting for the future of the human species. So that's why not to leave. Uh, just another Protestant denomination. First, I'd say, what's wrong with that? Uh, <laughs> you know, Protestant denominations are of the body of Christ. Uh, One of my strong convictions is that the Reformation 500 years ago was stillborn. Uh, It should have been fulfilled in a way that it wasn't able to be, partly because of 
outbreaks of savage violence, the wars that accompanied the great cultural transitions that were underway at that point, the arrival of nationalism, for example, the peasants' wars in Germany and so forth. So in a way, I'm arguing for a, a completion of the Reformation. And uh, take one example, uh, democracy. Um, the Reformation was the Christian church's encounter with the idea, the new idea then, that every member of the community is equal to every other member of the community. And in some Protestant denominations, that was realized. In fact, it gave us the congregational tradition, which you could argue gave us ultimately liberal democracy. So nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, part of what I'm arguing, when you dismantle the power structure of the Catholic hierarchy, what you want to have moved to is not chaos, but some form of democracy. Well, that seems like heresy for a Catholic, but that's only because we Catholics have taken for granted the medieval monarchy as the essential model for church governance, as if it were willed by God. It wasn't, uh, and it needs to be left behind. Yeah, the question of democracy, because I read that in the article, and, and I, you know, I think it's an interesting idea. Can you bring democratic elements into the, to the Catholic Church? The other side of that is we see even currently that democracy can be prone to authoritarian impulses. So I wonder how you reconcile what we're seeing happening in our democratic spheres um, moving towards a more authoritarian with the idea that you could make the church be more democratic. Well, Suzanne, that's, that's a crucially important observation you're making. Uh, liberal democracy itself is at risk now in ways that are shocking to us. Um, that's all the more reason, in my view, for the Roman Catholic Church, this global institution, to become ever more uh, a kind of living embodiment of democratic values. I'm not saying majority rule now, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying we have to have a parliament in the Catholic Church, but I am saying there are basic uh, values that uh, define the democratic impulse, transparency, right. accountability, the ways in which members of the community are regarded w one to another as equal, uh, the tip-off for uh, us in America today, lately, has been the place of women. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of democratic revolution going on uh, as a sort of latest version of the feminist revolution. Um, the, it's, it's not heresy to say that the governance of the Catholic Church can evolve. And I'm of an age where I remember when the Catholic Church began to move in this direction. Right. The Second Vatican Council, which met between 1962 and 1965, was a step toward democratic polity. Uh, we talked at that point about the value of collegiality, for example. Collegiality is a democratic idea that we're in this college together. Lay people, priests and bishops, all accountable to one another. That was a basic idea of Vatican II. It wasn't realized 
And uh, I would say it wasn't realized because the the popes and bishops who presided in the aftermath of Vatican II were too much in the grip of clericalism. Clericalism is a form of uh, dominant power. And you could say that the church is organized like a pyramid with the pope on top, the bishops in the high places, the priests in the middle places, and the people at the very bottom are the lay people. Uh, Well, that structure was begun to be reversed during the Second Vatican Council. Uh, when the church began to think of itself, well, let's use another image, um, as more of a circle, which was actually rendered in the way in which the liturgical renewal brought the altar down from a high platform and put it in the middle of the congregation, which was imaginatively an act of democracy, even if it wasn't uh, followed up on and fulfilled. I'm, you know, I'm not naive. I know that none of what I'm talking about is going to happen next year or the year after. I'm talking about the Catholic Church of 100 years from now. Right. And I think we have to have that long view. And we have to understand that the Catholic Church of 100 years from now will be fully reformed. It will be feminist. It will be democratic. But only if we begin to take steps toward that now. Um. On the issue of clericalism, this is sort of a theological question, and I guess it does get back to the discussion we were just having about Protestantism, but how do you get around the the theological question of the Catholic Church is built around the notion that only certain people can perform the central mystery? And that certainly contributes to clericalism. But that's what's part of what makes us Catholic. Sure. We, we Catholics have at the center of our lives uh, the Eucharist mm-hmm. and other sacraments, but especially the Eucharist, the kind of regular experience we have of the presence of Jesus Christ among us. There are two theological elements to the Eucharist. God in Jesus Christ is present in two ways, in the community right. and in the sacrament of the bread and wine which becomes for us believers the body and blood of our Lord uh, through the actions of the priest. Well, that's the way the sacrament has evolved. Uh, And there have been many long stretches of time when the second of those two principles, the way in which Christ is really present, really present in the community, was forgotten, so much so that Priests were often, uh, very often, off in a closet by themselves celebrating the Mass as if the only thing that mattered was the bread and wine. Right. Which, uh, as a post-Vatican II Catholic, is not the church that I experienced. It's true. Yeah. And, and it's hard to imagine. Why yeah. would a priest go into a closet and shut the door and say the Mass? Back to No, it's, it's all for the community. Christ is present in the community. And we return, of course, always to measure who we are as the church against uh, the church of the Gospels. And how was the Eucharist uh, observed in the first generation? Uh, This was a time when the memory of Jesus hadn't gelled in what we think of as the church fully. It was a time when the ritual remembering of Jesus and therefore making him present was done much less formally than it is now. We don't know exactly how, but in the first decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
there were gatherings of people around bread and wine that were not in any way ordained the way we think of ordained uh, sacraments today. So we are the church has evolved in its theology in the past, and it will continue to evolve in its theology. The theology of the Eucharist has evolved in the last 50 years, right. uh, putting new emphasis back on the way in which Jesus Christ is really present in the community. That's real presence. And the two elements, the sacrament and the community, are um, both essential. So um, priests, those members of the community who are designated to preside at the Eucharist, to serve the community in that way, do not need to be members of a power structure. Yes, they need to be in some way recognized as authorized uh, at the table, but they don't have to be authorized in the way we think of it now, which owes as much to feudal monarchy and its structures as it does to anything that uh, goes back to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So my last question is, <laughs> I don't know how much time you spend on Twitter, <laughs> but I spend a lot. Um, and the, this article caused a huge amount of reaction, particularly in Catholic circles. So how do you react to people like Father Jim Martin and others who have reacted pretty emotionally to, mm -hmm. this, uh, to this article? I understand it. Uh, Father Martin is someone whom I admire and read. Um, I never expected active practicing uh, priests to take what I've written lightly mm. uh, and to miss the challenge for their lives that's embedded in it. So Father Martin's disagreement with me doesn't come as a, as a surprise. Uh, I disagree with him. Mm. Um, his uh, rejection of what I argue boiled down, as I read it, at least the one piece of his I read, boiled down to a complaint that I equated the priesthood with clericalism. And I would just say back to him that he has the, the luxury of a sharp distinction between those two, priesthood good, clericalism bad. My argument is is a simple one, which is that the priesthood is embedded in clericalism and is being corrupted by it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, the, that's the challenge I'm presuming to make here. It's one I make uh, with grief and regret, but there it is. There was, um, I, I have a one. <laughs> you have I, question I, no, <laughs> I have at least one. Um, the, uh, talk about Pope Francis. There was a lot of enthusiasm around his uh, becoming Pope, um, him, him um, uh, the way he seemed to have a fresh approach to many issues. Um, you probably had some belief in, in his potential early on, mm -hmm. but that is becoming, a, there's a stumbling block there. Well, Pope Francis for me is the point of recognition because he is such a magnificent figure. I've written a lot about Pope Francis. I've written maybe a dozen articles for NewYorker.com celebrating and supporting his, what I take to be a revolution in the church. Um, one of my greatest regrets about what I've come to is uh, that I 
um, I now see that even a figure as monumental and hopeful as Pope Francis is in the grip of clericalism. He denounces it, but he does nothing to dismantle it. And the two simple uh, large points um, are his attitude toward ordaining women. He calls it a closed question. He agrees with his predecessor, Pope Benedict, on that. Pope Benedict uh, implied that the ordination of women is forbidden by God and that that's infallible Catholic teaching. Pope Francis seems to have come to that position himself. That's a terrible disappointment, but it's worse than that. It's a, it's a way of supporting the male supremacy of Roman Catholicism, which is an offense against justice. It's an offense against the memory of Jesus Christ. And Pope Francis is not inclined, uh, from all that we see, to change the church's tradition about ordaining married people, uh, which is also embedded in the deep dysfunction of Catholic uh, attitudes towards sexuality, as if the purity of the priesthood requires someone who is celibate. Um, that's a terrible idea, and Pope Francis is at the mercy of that too, from all that we see. He isn't even able to move us forward on the question of ordaining women to the diaconate he established a commission, or a commission was established perhaps before he became pope to study that. It, it kind of came to a, um, a dwindling uh, conclusion only a few weeks ago. Uh, no progress on that front. Even the orthodox tradition has ordained women to the diaconate, clearly a step toward ordaining women to the priesthood, which is probably why that movement has fizzled too. All of this under Pope Francis, I regret terribly uh, to be taking a position that might further undercut him. Um, I think his other um, values and commitments are exemplary and just what the church needs, especially his emphasis on mercy, his emphasis on experience over doctrine, his defense of migrants and Muslims his rejection of populism, all the things that make Steve Bannon uh, regard him as the enemy, all of that I support and welcome. I'm hoping yet for more from Pope Francis, but I'm not optimistic. Uh, the most recent reason is that two weeks ago, uh, you probably noticed, the Vatican finally issued its long-awaited new policy on how to handle clergy abuse of minors, and it's a terrible disappointment. Most grievously, it encourages, it, 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 it does nothing to require bishops to forward reports of the abuse of minors to civil authorities. Yet again, the church presuming to keep this crisis uh, to itself without transparency, without a mandated participation by lay people and with no mandated penalties for people who violate the policy. So that suggests that Pope Francis is on the way to failing in what was, what was his most important responsibility, which was to shepherd the church out of this morass and abyss of the clergy sex abuse scandal. All of that, it makes me very sad to have come to this position, but there it is. Well, um, Jim, thank you very much.
This has been a pleasure. My privilege. Thanks, Jim. My privilege.